Make your way, if you will, to Acts 9. We'll be picking up at verse 32. We'll look at a few passages before that, but we'll be looking through Acts chapter 9, the latter part of this chapter. Biblical miracles are widely viewed as one of the great embarrassments of our Christian heritage. In our Western world, stories of the Tooth Fairy and Santa Claus and dashing young princes transformed into toads and back again are all innocent fun. But, so the thinking goes, it gets a little creepy when Christians read biblical accounts of miracles and believe that they are actual events. Coming to the rescue is a long tradition of liberal Christianity which jockeys for a place at the philosophical table among anti-supernaturalists. Early 19th century German Reformed theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher, for instance, argued there is no supernatural realm. The miracles of the Bible, he claimed, are really just natural occurrences that felt very special at the time or impressed upon people a very special message. Now in this way of thinking, we might feel virtually anything to be a miracle. Anything that it makes us feel a certain way or seems to deliver a particular message that's unusual is a miracle. All the while saying miracles cannot be scientifically verified or rationally proven credible. The Christian faith liberals contend, is not organically related to a belief in miracles. You can be a Christian. You can be a good Christian. Indeed, you will be a much more enlightened Christian if you dismiss the whole notion of miracles. Well, let me say simply at this point that to disregard Biblical miracles is to close your ears at the revelatory voice of God in this world. God rules supremely over every atom and over every form of energy, over the entire time-space-mass continuum which He designed, which He preserves, and which He orders. However, there are rare occasions when God works powerfully and uniquely in order to get our attention and to reveal to us that something very important is happening in His salvation historical plan. Miracles are intended to arrest our attention. When God miraculously intervenes in the mundane history of this waking world, it is our duty not to tell God You can't do that. It is our duty to stop and to listen and to say, what is God saying here and now? I think indeed that the miracles that we find in Scripture are unique events. We are not to find miracles in lights turning green. We're not to find miracles in the fact that we messed up our checkbook and have more money in there than we thought. These aren't miracles. Even the birth of a child, as wonderful as it is, is really not miraculous as such. There's a few of them being born right now, and tomorrow, and the next day as God gives life. These aren't miracles. But there are these rare occasions in history where God steps in and says, I'm here. Listen we find in Acts chapter 9 
to such miraculous events. And our focus is not going to be here this morning, are these miracles possible? But to ask, what is God doing? What is He saying? Why are they recorded? We're not called by Scripture to come and to pour over every miracle and say, is this something God can do? But rather in faith to recognize that God has done this and He has a message to speak. As we close out Acts 9, God is uniquely on the move and we should seek to know why. Remember 9.31, as we mentioned here, we've come to the end of the second track in the book of Acts. The first track ends with a very similar statement, and here in 9.31 we read this summary statement. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. It was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now notice something. Go, if you will, quickly to 1224, where we come to the end of the next track. Track number three, notice how it ends, much more succinct here, but ends essentially the same way. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. So we are with 932... To the end of chapter 12, we have in this section this third track, and we know this text of Scripture, this passage of Scripture, deals with the conversion of the Gentiles. The gospel, the end of track 2, has spread from Jerusalem through Judea, through Galilee, through Samaria. We know in chapter 8 that it's worked its way up the western coast. As we move forward now, we are preparing to enter into the conversion of the Gentiles, the Gentile mission. At verse 32, we read of the Apostle Peter. He sort of comes back onto stage here. He's been last mentioned in 825, and he will be the one who will initiate this Gentile mission. Who's the missionary to the Gentiles? The ultimate missionary is Paul. Where's Paul? Paul's in Tarsus. He's there for about a 10-year period of time, and he'll come back into the picture in chapter 13. So in this section... This track that we're in right here, this third track, we are dealing largely with Peter. Peter is going to initiate the mission to the Gentiles. To this point in the book, the converts in Acts have some connection to the Jewish faith, to the Israelite community. Even the Ethiopian eunuch, though he's not from this area, he has nonetheless come to Jerusalem to worship. There is not a single full-blown Gentile that has been saved in the book of Acts. But that is all about to change, isn't it? And before we get to that, in chapter 10, there is inserted right here at the beginning of this track two miracle accounts. Now some people say, well, you've got to get these accounts in there because somehow you've got to get Peter from Jerusalem to Joppa. And that's true. We know, we, we learned through the Sumerian mission, the mission into Samaria, he comes back to Jerusalem, he's there in Jerusalem, this is where he's stationed, and we have to get him to Joppa somehow. But I think that there's much more going on here and much more as to why Luke puts these two miracle accounts right here at the start of this third track as it heads into Peter initiating the Gentile mission. We'll work our way through that, but first let's at least look at these two miraculous accounts. The first is the healing of Aeneas. Verse 32 of chapter 9, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, That is, Peter is going from here and there, ministering God's Word, evangelizing unbelievers, and he comes to the town of Lydda. 
working his way down from Jerusalem toward the coast. He'll eventually end up at Joppa, working through Lydda, which is about 25 miles, as you see here on the map, from Jerusalem. It was an important and significant city. But here, verse 33, there is found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. In light of Peter's aversion to meet with the Gentile Cornelius in chapter 10, we're safe to assume that Aeneas is a Hellenistic Jew. He has a Greek name, and he's probably a believer. For reasons that are not stated here, he is paralyzed and has been paralyzed for eight years. And Peter says to him, verse 34, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. What a deliverance. I have to just insert here a note from Charles Swindoll, who in his characteristic way makes comment on this, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. He said, this was real power. For years, some of us have been saying, arise and make your bed to our teenagers with no results. (laughs) Well, it was real power, wasn't it? It was real power. But the question is here, whose power? Who heals Aeneas? Well, we know that it's Peter. Go back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 43. It's Peter who heals him on one level. This is Peter's work as an apostle. Chapter 2, verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. We read this earlier note, and this ministry is continuing. The apostles continue to perform miracles. Chapter 3, you notice there the lame beggar who is healed. Remember our uh, work through that section and all the trouble that Peter got into through that. Acts chapter 5 and verse 12 Acts 5 and verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. In Luke chapter 9, we read that going back even further, that Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Jesus gave them this power. Jesus commissioned them to take His power to heal. And we find here Peter still doing that. So on one level, there is no question that Peter heals this man. But what is the emphasis? Obviously, the emphasis is that Jesus heals this man. What does Peter say? Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ heals you. This miracle shows what? It shows that Jesus is alive. You cannot raise someone up from eight years of paralysis in the name of a dead man who has succumbed to death and to human malady. In the name of Jesus, rise up. The miracle shows Jesus is alive. It shows that He is reigning at the Father's right hand and working to rescue sinners and put the enemy of physical deformity under his feet, which he will ultimately do. In Luke 11, Jesus said, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
The kingdom of God is in your midst. The rule of God is here. Peter does not claim the power is his. He would have no power if Jesus were dead. But in his word of command, Peter wields the power of the risen Christ. The kingdom of God is operating. Jesus is reigning. And this man is delivered from his malady. So the message of this miracle says something very strongly about Jesus. It says something, however, about Peter as well. I believe that God is saying something about Christ in healing him, but something also vital about Peter. We'll talk on that a bit later. But verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. They repented of their sin. I think this is hyperbole. Luke often uses hyperbole. It's not that every individual in this whole section of the earth trusted Christ as Savior, but all sorts of people were saved. You see the plain of Sharon there uh, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. There are people hearing of this miracle through this region. They know that Christ is risen. That's the message that God is sending That the power of Christ is operative in this world. That Jesus who raised people during His life reigns today and has raised this man from eight years of paralysis. And there are people who are getting the message. They're hearing the voice of God and they're turning and responding. The second account is the healing of Tabitha, verse 36. And there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Tabitha, her Aramaic name, Dorcas, her Greek name, meaning gazelle and figurative for beloved, this woman was certainly that. Tabitha was likely a wealthy woman who provided care particularly for widows in Joppa. Simply said, she was a good woman. She was a good woman, a woman with busy hands and with a caring heart. And so it really hurts when she dies. In fact, there's no respecter of persons with death. And in those days, verse 37, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Washed her is shorthand for the entire burial process, but there was a ceremonial washing of the dead body and a preparation of that body for burial. They lay her in an upper room. Now, as you can see on the map here, since, verse 38, Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. They knew Peter wielded God's healing power, and they ventured out in faith to ask his assistance. They did what virtually anyone would do in this situation. Would it be possible? Might it be in the will of God for you to come here to Joppa and to heal this woman who is so precious to us among the believers? So Peter rose, verse 39, and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. That is, these widows are apparently women upon whom Tabitha had bestowed her charitable efforts. They show outer garments and inner garments that she has made that they are perhaps wearing or that they are displaying in some way there and showing of this woman's reputation, of her uh, appreciation by others. 
But Peter, verse 40, put them all outside. He didn't really care to have a fashion show at this moment. He had other things on his mind. And he puts them out, and he kneels down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Very interesting parallel with Jesus and Jairus' daughter. In the Aramaic tongue, he said, Talitha, kum. Here, Peter, probably in Aramaic, says, Tabitha kum. Very close in his statement there. And praying before her, she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. So as with Aeneas, Peter calls Tabitha to rise. Aeneas from a bed of paralysis, Tabitha from her deathbed. And as with the Aeneas healing, People get the message. God has done something very unique here, and they listen. Verse 42, And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Again, this miracle authenticated Peter and the message he proclaimed in the name of the risen Christ. Again, many people believe. But the Gospel continues to spread. And here in direct relationship with this miracle. And here is Peter, this apostle of Christ, this man who speaks to thousands, who is moving throughout the region to build up believers in the faith and is probably one of the most sought-after speakers in the whole region. Here is this man who wields the power of God to heal. And the best he can do for the night is Simon the Tanner's house. A tanner dealt with the carcasses of dead animals, stripped their skins, and did stuff with the bodies. That's a tanner. This was a place that was unclean in the sight of the rabbis, the religious authorities in Israel. The rabbis permitted a woman to divorce her husband if she found out that he had become a tanner or that he was a tanner. Not sure how she'd marry him without knowing that, but, but they covered all of their bases. So if you figured that out after you were married, you could divorce him. If he became a tanner after you were married, you could divorce him. This was an offer to women to divorce men, which was extremely rare. But the rabbis gave that permission if you married a tanner. This was an ugly business, a smelly, ugly business that rendered one religiously unclean. In fact, one rabbi said that you cannot permit a tanner to be within 75 feet of the town limits. They've got to be outside the town limits at least a little ways, always putting them on the outside. Now, there's all kinds of discussion as to what this means. I think probably it doesn't mean a whole lot other than, who's Peter? The great apostle? Now, Peter never really got the fishermen out of him. Staying with a tanner wasn't probably a real big thing to him, but certainly what it is saying is that he is not following the scruples of the religious authorities. Peter will have a few scruples of his own that God's going to take care of here pretty soon. But for now, the revered apostle finds lodging in the smelly hovel of a tanner. This is a follower of Christ. This is not one who is fleecing his followers to make money to become wealthy on the gospel. This is a man who humbly serves Christ and like his master Jesus, will eat at anyone's home 
will sleep at anyone's home. Simon, a tanner, puts up the apostle Peter for some time. Now, thinking on these two miracles... Miracles, remember, are unique works of God by which He overrides His natural ordering of things in order to get us to sit up and pay attention. Generally, the miracles of Acts demonstrate one thing. They demonstrate that Jesus Christ is risen, that He is reigning, that He is drawing attention to the presence and saving message of His kingdom in this fallen world. Specifically, in biblical context, God is saying something here very important, not only about Jesus, but about Peter. A careful reading of the healing of Tabitha reveals the familiar brushstrokes of God's authenticating miraculous power in the ministry of one of His choice servants. The familiar brushstrokes are here. For anyone seeped as the Hebrews were in the Old Testament Scriptures, just the way that Luke writes this, what takes place here in Peter's experience, must bring up memories of two very significant events where two prophets of God were authenticated by God. Elijah in 1 Kings 17. And maybe our Old Testament backgrounds begin to kick into place here. Elijah, 1 Kings 17, and the widow's son at Zarephath. In fact, we won't chase this today, but a Gentile who was healed by Elijah. And then there is 2 Kings chapter 4 and Elisha and the Shunammite's son who is raised to life. As you put these together, there are people who say, well, this is all just coincidental. And certainly, perhaps, every miraculous story has some connection with some other miraculous story. But I think there's something more here than mere coincidence. That God is really not concerned with these connections. I see, rather, the familiar brushstrokes of the Master. As He says, Peter... Elijah, Elisha, watch these men. Notice this graphically here. In Acts 9, Tabitha dies. In the ministry of Elijah, the widow's son dies. Elisha, a woman's son, dies. In each of these three accounts, the body is laid in the upper room. I did not come to conclusion on this. There were commentators who said this was very normal, There were commentators who said, they're wrong, this never happened. You never laid a dead body in an upper room. I don't know what the answer is, and there's a lot of years separating these, so I don't know that I can get there or help you with that at this point. But it is interesting that each one is laid in an upper room, and that that point is mentioned. Even if it was common to lay a body in an upper room, there's not a necessity to mention it here. In each case, there is an appeal to the man of God, to Peter, to Elijah, and to Elisha, to intervene and to seek to do something with this death. In each case, the man of God prays. In each case, God answers the prayer, and there is a rising from the dead. And you notice the womanly orientation in each of these accounts. Tabitha, a woman, a widow's son, a woman's son. And then there are those who are informed. Again, women. The widows are informed in the case of Tabitha. I'm sure others were informed too. In fact, it says the saints were told. 
But widows are uniquely brought out. The mother is informed. The mother is informed under Elijah and Elisha. And then there is a response of belief in each of these accounts. Again, you can draw your own conclusion. For me, this isn't coincidence alone. Why does Luke tell the story the way he tells it? Why does Luke tell these two accounts of healing right where he does? At the start of the Gentile mission. Why? It seems to me that the point here is that God is using these miracles, the healing of Aeneas and the resuscitation of Tabitha, she would die again, but raising her from the dead, he is doing this to say, pay attention to this man. He has my authority. These miracles are a badge that point to Peter as God's authoritative messenger. Jesus prepared us for this. He said in John 3, or Nicodemus actually, as he came to Jesus, said, remember this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Peter, picking up that same message in Acts 2, said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. And the Apostle Paul then speaking in those same words about the work that he did as an apostle. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Notice again, it's the sign of a true apostle that such miracles take place. I don't think Luke is just throwing these two stories in here to say, we need a commercial break right about here. Let's throw in a couple miraculous stories. I think what he is saying is this man, Peter, has God's approval. Watch what he does. Listen to what he says. What Peter is going to do as we move into chapter 10 in the future is going to scandalize the Jews. In fact, it is going to rattle even the most devout Christians. We don't appreciate this as Gentiles, but for Jews to take the message of Christ into Gentile territory and to appeal directly to Gentiles without bringing them through Israel is almost unimaginable. That hurdle was massive. And God, I think, is saying through these miracles, God is saying, God is doing something here and He is saying, listen to this man. Watch what I do with him. Watch where he goes from here. As we can see then, one of the scary implications of denying miracles is that you dismiss God right at the moment that He's trying to gain your attention. Miracles authenticate. Miracles say, this one has God's approval. I've mentioned three passages here. There's numerous indications of this. And right at that very point, people stop and say, no, there's no miracles. It's frightening. In Acts 9, God is pointing at Peter and saying, watch this man, he has my approval, he has my authority, 
and will be used to advance my saving purposes in history-changing ways. Now, let's say it's true. No one is saved by believing in the reality of miracles. Yet you cannot be saved apart from believing in miracles because through them God reveals Himself. What is the hub of these miracles? What is the hinge of these miracles? The healing of this man in paralysis, the raising from the dead of Tabitha, all of this points back to and hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we are seeing here is the Christ who will rule over sin and death. We are seeing evidences of His reign as this man who's paralyzed is raised up from his bed and as this woman on her deathbed is raised up and restored to her friends. This is the Jesus who has conquered death that's doing this. And all of it hinges on His resurrection power. When without faith in His resurrection power, we won't believe in miracles. Without faith in His resurrection power, we won't be saved. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. How pitiful it is that Christians will flock to churches this day. The churches that speak of the resurrection of Christ as something that's happened in spirit. His spirit is with us. He's risen from the dead in the sense that we remember His good life among us. That's a damning heresy. Because it says He did not actually defeat death. What does the Apostle say? If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, and He says in the same context, He was put in the grave, talking about His physical death. He appeared to people that He names If we don't trust in that miracle, we have no hope. We have no life. We are not reconciled to God apart from it. Now again, believing that Jesus rose from the dead doesn't save anyone. But you cannot be saved apart from belief in His actual resurrection. In fact, where people deny the miraculous, soon what will follow is a denial of the Gospel. Schleiermacher and the liberals who follow him to our very day, it's not just that miracles can't happen. We can still be saved. We can still be good Christians, but we just we realize that miracles didn't really happen. It never goes that way. It always continues to track until the gospel is lost. The son of an Orthodox German Reformed church minister Friedrich Schleiermacher was sent to study at a Moravian seminary in Barbie, far away from the German universities where rational unbelief was so thoroughly entrenched. His devout father laboring among the German Reformed Church, knowing how many were giving up supernaturalism, wanted his son to be tucked away somewhere where this wouldn't all affect him, but it infected the air. And there, in that Moravian seminary, Anti-supernaturalism captured the heart of Schleiermacher. In 1787, in a crisis of faith, young Friedrich stunned his devout father with these words, not simply saying, I don't believe in miracles now, but he said, and I quote, I cannot believe that he, 
who called himself the Son of Man, was the true eternal God. I cannot believe that his death was a vicarious atonement. There it is. I cannot believe it to have been necessary because God, who evidently did not create men for perfection, but for the pursuit of it, cannot possibly intend to punish them eternally because they have not attained it. Their reason begins to make a fool of the unbeliever. Miracles can't be eventually becomes the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ cannot be. We can be good Christians, followers, as we think about and remember the story and the history of Jesus. But there is no blood, there's no atonement, there's no resurrection from the dead. And in the words of the apostle himself, there is then no hope. The Apostle Peter truly healed Aeneas, and he raised Tabitha from the dead. These accounts are not here to say, isn't this neat? Imagine how wonderful it was for these people, and it was. These accounts are here for a larger reason, and that is that they hinge on the fact that one day, outside the city walls of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He came out of the grave in risen form. He defeated death and the judgment of God. And redemption is now possible. It has been won, in fact, including physical redemption. Ultimately, Jesus Christ has totally, completely, sufficiently defeated death and sin. He's still laboring to bring to close the history of rebellion against Him. But this is no myth or fairy tale. This is the resurrection of Christ, the declaration of God that the power of sin has been broken, that reconciliation with God is secured for His people, for all those who trust in Jesus' substitutionary death and vicarious resurrection. There is grace and forgiveness and an inheritance with God forever. Have you trusted that message? Is your future hinged to the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ? We don't go from this place and say, go and comb through your neighborhoods, turning over every rock and looking for miracles wherever you can find them. There is only one miracle ultimately that's necessary, and that is Christ's resurrection. Obviously a string connected to them to bring them to that place, but you know what I mean. We don't have to go out and find miracles today in order to bolster a weak faith that God is. We can always look back to the empty tomb and say, there God spoke with authority. And when we close our ears to the miraculous, when we refuse to think that God could do this, we shut out the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I trust you've not done that but that you know that God does reign supreme over all things and can, where He chooses, enter into the story of history imposing unique events meant to get our attention and to draw our faith to the message that flows from those events. 
That's what's happening here with Peter, and that's what has ultimately happened with Jesus Christ in his resurrection power. God has spoken. Sin has been defeated. Satan's head has been crushed. And there is for God's people through all eternity a home with God. Praise His name. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, how rich we are. How little we perceive the wonders of Your saving grace. We come to You as sinners those who are fallen and weak, as those who need your saving power, but we come as those who rejoice that there's an empty grave. We thank you that though this world would receive us more readily if we just denied this, we praise you, Father, for its truth and that you have witnessed that truth to us by your Spirit. Yours is the glory, not our wisdom but your power, your enlightening grace, your mercies to us in Jesus to see that Christ died to pay the penalty of sin and rose from the dead. Father, we rejoice in this truth and say that because He lives, we live. And may we live that life faithfully. And may you open the eyes that are blind and permit anyone separated from Christ to see in Him saving grace today. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.